invite you to grab your Bibles and go to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 2. In the past series of Genesis, we've allowed for some question and answer time, and I'm going to switch that up and call it question and response time. So I'm going to share a, a few words, and then I'm going to leave some time at the end to have some interaction on questions, which means you can ask almost any question that you want. I mean, really, any question that you want. And uh, the reason why we call it question and response is because um, we recognize that not anybody in this room knows all of the answers to all these questions. The whole point of asking the question is to push all of us further into deeper understanding, greater insights, and to think about things in ways that we maybe haven't thought before. So um, as you are going through today's message, I encourage you to write some notes down. Um, I've got a lot to give you that's going to be like data information, some nuances, things you're going to probably want to take note in your Bible love. And then at the end, uh, I'm going to invite you to ask some questions And we'll just have a brief time of doing that. And we hope that that continues on uh, through the life of our church. Uh, Before we get to the text and to the message, would you just uh, bow your heads and pray with me as I just ask God to be with us during the reading of his word and uh, the remembrance of these stories. Uh, God, we are just so humbled to be here. And we are going to pick up an ancient text and read some really old words. And as we do so, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit and the presence here, teach us, guide us, and lead us. For these are not just old words, but they are inspired words. They are words that speak deep truths and illuminate for us amazing, profound ways of what life is, the conflicts that we all face, and the salvation that we all desire and seek and hope for. So as we dig into some study today, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be opened and that you would guide us and that you would lead us. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Last uh, couple weeks at the very beginning, we had talked about how Exodus is really the same story as the book of Genesis. And so again, if you're joining us in in the middle of this, We're going to encourage you to check out Genesis all the way from the very beginning, all of those however many teachings that we gave over the course of last year, because they're really one story. And we hope that you also don't get distracted by all of the popularism that happens around the book of Exodus, such as, you know, news articles about finding chariots, the chariots wheels or or news articles or sensational history channel, discovery channel things that describe exactly how the 10 plagues worked with each other. We hope that you don't get terribly distracted by those. Now, there's a lot of fun in that, and we're not saying that it's a bad thing to do. What we're simply saying is don't miss the greater, grander story, the teachings and the brilliance of what God is trying to do through these stories by only doing all of that other stuff. So we, we, that's how we started. And then Danielle gave a couple of talks which are now online, and we encourage you to catch up on if you miss them, that the Israelites from their time in Egypt, were doing exactly what God had intended them to do, to be a blessing, which is to be fruitful and multiply, the first blessing. And as they are doing that, that is the very thing that caused them to be a target in the eyes of the Egyptians. So the very thing that you may be engaging in that is fully and completely in the line and in the will of God may be the very thing that's causing trouble, causing persecution, causing challenge. And then last week, Danielle shared um, a great message, major significance of minor characters. 
that the story of Moses does not happen without very key, seemingly insignificant individuals in this story. Woven in, the names of Shifra and Pua, later on with Moses' wife, uh, all sorts of very significant events by seemingly minor characters that have major significance. And we ought to remember that the biblical narrative is not about big, grand names like Moses and Abraham and David and Joshua and all of the big things that they accomplished. The biblical story is also about all of us doing small things every single day in small ways of obedience that make huge differences in this world. And so we talked about all of these three things over the course of the last couple of weeks. Now, we had also mentioned, and we're going to get to it here today, that what the story is crafting is this brilliant, ironic tension between that which God had intended and that which Pharaoh, a power, a structure of existence that exists here on earth, how they are going to come into conflict. And how does that work? And even though God is saying, be fruitful and multiply, Pharaoh is saying, throw all of these babies into the Nile, which is a complete contradiction to what God had said to the Israelites. And so what is set up through this story is this conflict, this tension, this amazing drama that is now being unfolded. And so that's going to bring us to chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. I'm going to invite you to follow along with me, and we will read all the way through verse 10. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, which many of you say, he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among, among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. <laughs> Sweet deal. <laughs> I love how we're just reading the text, and you're already picking up all of these ironic twists and turns of the story. Now the, the narrator, the writer of this story, is crafting this in such a way as to highlight these key uh, twists and turns. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. We'll stop our reading there. I want to share with you a message that I've entitled The Opposite of Tragedy. The Opposite of Tragedy. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse. And what I'd like to share with you are some details that may be in the text that we're missing out on, or we may gloss over with just reading the story, and point out that there are some intricately woven themes throughout this text. And then when we get to the end of kind of pulling out each and every one of these little pieces of the puzzle, of which there's many more, 
we're going to get to the dramatic unfolding of what are all of these details there for? Why are they illuminating for us different allusions to the past events, different definitions, different things? And the first is this word, Levi. In chapter 2, verse 1, it starts with a certain man from Levi is going to take a woman from Levi and then have a son. And again, the biblical text is filled with all sorts of details that we may go, okay, that's, that's nice. They just seem to be filler to get us to the real story. But I'd like to suggest to you that there's something really significant and, and some beautiful interpretations that we can pull. The word Levi or Levi means attached. And even though Moses, in his story of many of you are going to know this, is going to shift from a Hebrew context in a Hebrew household to an Egyptian one, fundamentally his life is still attached to his root. And so that Moses is coming from the line of Levi, I think is significant to his name. It's very similar to if somebody moved from one particular location to another particular location, but your identity, your very soul, who you are is still deeply attached to another location. That is Levi Stadium, for those of you who aren't laughing yet. And it's not the Santa Clara 49ers, right? Are, are, we, are you with me? So very similar, and I, I, I loved it, how it's called Levi's Stadium. I mean, this totally worked for my illustration. <clears throat> so even though there's a shift from one location to another, fundamentally, identity, call, purpose for Moses is deeply attached to who he originally was, the calling upon his life, his destiny. And that's going to be important within the story. Later on, when we get to next week and we get to the drama, Moses is going to be reminded of his heritage. He cannot get away from the fact that he is attached to who he originally was. So that detail about Moses coming from the tribe of Levi, I don't think is there by accident. It's there because it's weaving a story, another detail that's really significant and important. Moses' mom sees him, and he's, she says he's a fine child, which, of course, but what's significant about this particular passage in, in chapter 2, verse 2, is that the phraseology is not just that he's a fine child, he's a beautiful child, it says specifically, and she looked upon him because good. Because good. Looking upon this child because good. Now, if you read that phraseology in the original Hebrew, that reminds you of what? Genesis 1. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. It's crafted specifically to remind you that the birth of this child is not just about this child. What's happening from God's perspective in the life of the birth of this child is an invocation of all of the beautiful resonances of creation once again through this child. That, this theme is going to color almost every other story throughout the rest of the scriptures. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That phraseology also comes from Genesis. And so once again, here in this passage, in this verse, we're starting to see that the description of this child being good is resonant of all of that creative power. So 
When you think of God creating the world out of nothing, speaking into chaos and creating order and bringing things to right the way that they're supposed to be, all of that that we might think of as a great cosmic event that happened some long time ago happens actually over and over and over and over again. That creation narrative is happening again in this child. In addition to this, what's so beautiful is it's not just about the birth of this child. Why does this story start with midwives? What framing for the entire Exodus story would you think the author is trying to convey by starting with a story about midwives? Because what do midwives do? They help with the birth. And if you take a look at the rest of the Exodus story, the blood on the mantles, passing through the water, the plagues that are coming upon Egypt as birthing pains, contractions, the writer of this story is crafting this in such a way as to describe the birth of a child equated with the birth of a nation. That what is happening to these people is a brand new thing, which reminds me of Jesus' words in John chapter 3. You must be born again, born of the water, born of the Spirit. All of those resonances are there in this Exodus story. That's brilliant. That's beautiful. And it helps to show us this is a much bigger story. What happens isn't just about liberation, but liberation is also imbued with this story with a whole idea of coming to birth, coming to life again. She went and got a basket and coated it with bitumen or or pitch. Does anybody know what that word? Some of you have been with us for a little while. The word in Hebrew for basket is Teva. Everybody say Teva. This is really important because she places him in a basket. Well, that word Teva is used only twice in the entire Bible. The other time that that word is used, somebody you know? Noah's Ark. So, and, and Noah's Ark is even covered with the same pitch. It's the exact same language. So the birth of Moses is the story of this whole new creation And the placing of Moses in the basket is symbolic of just like God was recreating the world once again through Noah, God is now recreating the world once again through Moses. The exact same thing. And what I love so much when I looked it up on Bible Gateway is they actually highlight it there for you. All of these notes are there for us. Now, next, she takes this basket, this teva, this saving vessel, which is resonant of Noah and the ark, which, by the way, both of them floating upon the water and both of them floating upon waters that will eventually be the destruction of the unrighteous. It's a brilliant connection. She placed the basket amongst the reeds. She placed the teva amongst the reeds. Now, reeds are really important in the ancient world. The word for reeds here is the word suf. Everybody say suf. suf. Now, uh, suf is found throughout the Bible. You can look it up. It's in, in di- uh, several passages. One of the passages that it's found is in Jonah chapter 2, verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was around my head. And that word seaweed there is actually the word suf, the word reed. And it is that word seaweed. So we're not exactly sure what this is. We do know which is why we kept harping uh, last week, and we'll continue to say that it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea. 
that they cross over because that he's placed amongst the reeds is foreshadowing that he's going to once again pass through the reeds later on. And ultimately, it's going to be Pharaoh's demise. Why reeds? Why is this important? Um, Pliny the Elder, who is an ancient historian writing around the first century A.D., writes extensively about this material, suf, reeds, which is also known as papyrus. This is actually where we get the word paper, because it was from this particular reed that they would slice the reeds open, lay them down in a crisscross fashion, pound them together, and the natural sugars would glue that together, and hence we have our very first writing surface. In addition to that, the reed is used all over Egyptian life. It's used for paper. It's used for boats. They would create um, boats, and especially since the Nile is so important, so central to the Egyptian culture, to create boats is really important. They would use it for baskets, for carrying of food and the storing of food. They would actually use it for food, jewelry, decorations. So when Moses is placed amongst the reeds, he's placed amongst a material that is symbolically deeply imbued in the entire Egyptian culture. Uh, This stuff, by the way, paper boats, basket, food, jewelry, decorations, all that goes way back to the fourth millennia in Egypt. We have documents and archaeological references to this being used all the way back 4,000 years. So that's significant to me. He's placed amongst the reeds. Why is it necessary to name what kind of foliage he's amongst? Well, this is significant. The reeds are all within Egyptian culture. They're symbolic of all the life and the liveliness of what Egyptian culture is. To the Egyptian mind, it's life. To the Hebrew mind, the word suf actually connotes something very different. So there might be a double entendre going on here. The reeds in the Hebrew mind symbolize weakness, fickleness, or instability. It is the idea of this passage that we will get to later on in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? A reed in the Hebrew mind is symbolic of somebody who doesn't have strong convictions. A reed is symbolic of somebody who is easily swayed one way or the other by the turn of events, by that which might be favorable to somebody, by that which might be ego-driven or what might be beneficial. So when Moses is placed amongst the reeds to the Hebrew mind, he's placed right into the middle of somebody or something or a culture in which there's not a real strong conviction. And when you get to the later story of Pharaoh, he changes his mind constantly. Fine, go ahead and go. But then his ego kicks in. No, we want you back. And it's this constant push back and forth. So there's a couple things going on with the idea of the reeds. First, the idea that... Um, this is something that symbolizes instability or weakness, somebody who is swayed by the, by the winds. This is, resonate, uh, this is resonant, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. It is this idea that the reed invokes. Somebody who lacks the strength of moral conviction and is constantly twisted and turned and moved by every single wind of change. So, for me, symbolically, what does this mean? 
when Moses is placed in the reeds, there's two images that come to mind that I think are important for what's going to happen later on in the development of the story. The first is that he's placed symbolically right into the middle of Egyptian life. The reed was everywhere, food and clothing and paper and boats, transportation. The reed symbolized the vitality of what it meant to be Egyptian, or at least it was one of those symbols that was deeply important to Egyptian life and thrivance. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Moses. He's not just going to approach Pharaoh, say, hey, hey, we need to let these people go. He's first going to spend 40 years of his life deeply entrenched in the Egyptian life and Egyptian culture. And the second is this, that I think it is also symbolic that Pharaoh is essentially going to be that reed swayed by the wind. Fine, go ahead and go. Okay, I changed my mind. Go ahead and come back. And depending upon wherever his ego, whichever way his ego blows, is the way that he's going to go. Which is why we always get confused as God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and all of that conversation and discussion. Pharaoh ultimately lacks the strength of moral conviction um, that is going to come when Moses says essentially one thing over and over and over and over again. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. There is no blowing in the wind for Moses. Pharaoh's daughter sees this child weeping, which is the only recorded instance in the entire Bible of a child crying. The only recorded instance. Which is resonant of the tears of the Israelites and the Egypt, uh, excuse me, the Israelite slaves in bondage, crying out to God. And so here, just in this little phraseology, we get a little glimpse into this Moses, this little child is going to weep along with the people that he's liberating. And then she does this crazy thing. This is crazy. She named him Moses. I know, you're all astounded, right? This is nuts, saying I drew him out of the water. This naming is perplexing. There's a couple reasons why. The word Moses in Egyptian sounds like the word son, sounds like the word child, Moses. But it's Pharaoh's daughter who says, an Egyptian who says, I've named him my son because I have drawn him out of the water, which is a Hebrew definition of the word Moshe. And so the writer is doing something really twisted here. How in the world is an Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh going to know that the name that she's choosing for this child is going to have a Hebrew cognate. It's going to have a Hebrew definition of drawing out of the water. I don't have an answer. I just, here, figure it out. Because this is, this is wild to me. If you know of any uh, Egyptian names and you study uh, Egyptian history, you will find other names, the most famous of them being Tutmos. There's that word Mos, or Moses, the son of Tut. And what's fascinating about this is that she names him Moses because I drew him out of the water, which is a Hebrew definition. But originally what she said, I named him my son in Egyptian. So there's two really amazing things going on here. So this is also 
an adoption story. And how Pharaoh commanded that all of the firstborn children are to be thrown into the Nile. So all of the children are thrown into the Nile. And where does Pharaoh's daughter get her firstborn son? From the Nile. (laughs) This is so amazing. I love it. This is a picture of Ramses, or at least a, wow, he's a good-looking guy. Uh, Or at least some sort of uh, computer regeneration, but it's pretty close. There's a second thing, or a third thing, I've lost count. There's so many weird, fun things about this name Moses. If the Pharaoh of this Moses story is Ramses, then there's some additional definitions and meaning that could be there. We all know, we know from the biblical text that the Israelites are building Pitom and Ramses, the cities. So we know the name Ramses is involved in there. But if this is the guy that's eventually going to have this conflict with Moses, to say good in Hebrew, we already said it or we mentioned it earlier, you say tov. But to say bad in Hebrew, you say ra. So the word Ramses, ra, Moses, may actually sound like the bad Moses. <laughs> Come on, this is, this is amazing. Do you see the drama that's building? All of these little details, all of these little events, little hints, foreshadowing, re- recollection, something big. It's not just about how God does miracles. There's this huge deeply human, connected, dramatic story that's unfolding. And Moses, Moshe in Hebrew, is going to draw his people out. And if it's Ramses, he's going to be the bad person that draws the people out. So all these details and many more are layers of literary drama unfolding through every detail. And the writer is setting up and crafting up this drama and almost giving you these little hints, kind of like these little trailers of things that are to come. Oh yeah, he's placed in the reeds. Later on, there's going to be a reed sea. Oh yeah, blow the babies in the Nile. Oh, it's the Nile's going to turn to blood, as Danielle mentioned um, last week. There are all of these resonances And it's crafting in one really amazing story. So, let's get to what does that mean for us? Well, a couple things in summary. I would suggest to you that what we've just covered in these short ten verses is a dramatic story about recreation. It's about how, just like God had the power to to create the world out of nothing, speak into chaos and create that which was eventually the Garden of Eden and this beautiful creation in Genesis, he does the exact same thing, but now it's through people. And so when you have moments of salvation and redemption, even amongst us, whenever you have those moments where you speak justice, whenever you have those moments where you do the right thing, whenever you have those moments where ethics, godly ethics, are lived out in this world, It's not just moralism. What you're doing is invoking the entire created power of God in that moment, like in a little baby. It's a recreation moment. And we get to see creation happen over 
and over and over and over. People argue all the time. And I, I actually love the arguments like, you know, when did it happen and how did it happen and how many days and how many years? That's a wonderful argument and let's have a conversation about it. But let us not forget something huge. The Genesis story wasn't written just to tell us that it happened But the Genesis and the Exodus story and the John story and the Jesus story is telling us that it happens every single day, every moment. As you and I connect with a covenantal God. So all of these things that are coming later on in Exodus are going to show us how this created order lives in this world. Through the Ten Commandments, through the building of the tabernacle, through the commandments and the laws. All of that stuff through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and everything that's coming all invokes this idea of creation. This is a story about redemptive adoption. That Pharaoh's daughter would take this child, this Hebrew child, and call him her son. And it is through that act of adoption that salvation is eventually going to come. And what's fascinating is that God, when he talks about the Israelites later on in the story, you and me, we are all called his son, his child. And even later on in in the book of Ephesians, there's going to be that theme that God foreknew, predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And so just like Moses was adopted and the salvation and the liberation event came through that, so you and I are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Your identity is with him and salvation is going to come through that motif as well. It's a cultural commentary about who the Egyptians are and why the regime of Pharaoh is not going to bring about the very best of life. He gets one thing, he tries one thing, and gets something completely opposite, which we're going to get to. It's a birthing story. And the whole view and the whole idea and the whole emotion that comes with the birth of a child is what we feel when there's liberation, when there's salvation, when there is freedom. That all of that is imbued. And then there's this dramatic tragedy that's going to happen with Pharaoh because he has every opportunity to do what's right. He has every opportunity to save even his own people, and he does not do it. And every turn, he tries to do something that strokes his own ego or whatever, and it only comes back to bite him. So this dramatic tragedy. In drama, there's really only two kinds. There's tragedy and comedy. And this quote by Oscar Wilde, I think, is quite apropos. There are really only two tragedies in life. One is not getting what one wants, and the other is getting it. (laughs) And if you take a look at the Pharaoh's story, and this unfolding of drama, and the tragedy that is eventually going to come upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, this is exactly what happens. The great tragedy is not that Pharaoh is thumbing his nose at God and completely disobedient. That's there too. The great tragedy is that Pharaoh gets exactly what he asks for. That's the great tragedy. He imposes upon the people harsh labor. Why? Because they're getting too numerous. So he says, harsh labor for everybody. Then they won't have time to procreate. Apparently Hebrews can find time to procreate. (laughs) Go ahead, extra clock hours, overtime, no problem. We'll still find time. Harsh labor, and what happens? The Israelites actually continue to multiply. He says, death to the firstborn son. That's what I think needs to happen in order to, in order to curb the population, in order to gain control. And of course, many of you know at the very end of the ten plagues, 
he's going to reap exactly what he asks for. And then he says, throw all these babies into the Nile. So he wants to create that which is life. He wants to create it and recreate it and redefine it as a grave, a place of death. And of course, it starts with the Nile turning to blood. And then that water motif, the idea that water is supposed to be life, is is eventually going to lead to death for Pharaoh and all of his army. This, I suggest to you, during this portion of Exodus, and there's a lot more we're going to get to, this is what I suggest to you, is the great tragedy of the drama that's unfolding. That Pharaoh's motif, the idea of who he is, what he is trying to do, is the Oscar Wilde quote. There are two tragedies, not getting what you want and getting exactly what you want. And that is the unfortunate demise of Pharaoh and his entire kingdom as a result. How does this happen today? I can think of one example that is quite apropos. You can think of others. How many of you have heard stories of people who have won the lottery They have gotten exactly what they want. Millions of dollars, no need for any more financial worries. And yet, if you search briefly, you will find story after story after story of the very thing that you got, the very thing that you wanted, and the very thing that you actually got, the very thing that you were prized with, the very thing that you thought was going to be your blessing was ultimately your greatest curse and ultimately was your demise, and ultimately was your downfall. This, I think, is one of the lessons of the Exodus story from Pharaoh. There's plenty from God and from Moses and uh, from the minor characters. This is the one from Pharaoh. The great tragedy is getting exactly what you want. And the biblical writers are crafting this story, this tension between these two. Because as we're going to get to chapter 3 with Moses, as God calls Moses, Moses doesn't get anything he wants. I don't want to go. Don't send me. I'm not involved. Can't you send somebody else? I don't really talk so good. So, I mean, Moses doesn't want any of this, and he gets exactly that, and it's that which liberates. So you're going to see this drama play out. Let me sum up, and then we'll take some questions. Number one, creation is not an event in the past. It is a worldview. It's something that continues to happen every single day. As you and I enter into this covenant relationship with God, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because all of that is going to be invoked once again as we get to the Ten Commandments, as we get to Passover, as we get to the building of the tabernacle. All of those things are going to inform us what does it mean to recreate ourselves, to be born again. Number two, the kinship bond or the covenant, remember Pharaoh adopting Moses, that relationship, adoption, covenant, That is the biblical vision of life. Pharaoh thinks of everything else as commodities to control. And throughout the story, God is weaving adoption, relationship. Moses' sister, Moses' mother, these covenantal relationships. So if you think life is all about people that are to be commoditized and controlled, the biblical story says, no, life is actually through these intricate, beautiful covenantal relationships. Adopting, sharing, sacrificing. And then number three, what is the opposite of tragedy? The opposite of tragedy is not blessing. The opposite of tragedy is not favor. The opposite of tragedy is not getting what you want. In fact, getting what you want may actually be the very tragedy that you invoke. The opposite of tragedy 
is salvation. Is God saving you from both what you want and what you don't want? Because that's what God is going to do with Moses. We often think tragedy is not getting those things that we want. And I would suggest to you that tragedy may actually come in getting exactly what we think we want. And the biblical motif through Moses and salvation and the liberation is to be saved from desires altogether. Um, it reminds me of Psalm 37, 4. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and he will give you the desires of your heart, which has usually been manipulated to say, well, God's going to get me anything I want. No, read carefully, it's God will give you different desires a salvation and a recreation of who you are. What's the opposite of tragedy? It's not getting what you want. It's being saved from all of those things that distract us of what we think we want. And sometimes it might even be being saved from the blessings that we already have. Sometimes. Lord, thank you so much for the brilliance of these writings and we could spend the rest of our lives, as many of us have, have done already, digging in deep and discovering the truths and the nuances about life and living and, and, and what you would have to teach us. So, God, as we continue on through this Exodus series, may our hearts continually be more and more open to hearing what it is that you'd have to share and to teach. Uh, may we be delighted once again in your word. May we be awe-inspired once again at who you are. And may our lives conform more and more to the values and the ethics um, and being God-centered in the way that you have described in this book. Thank you for my friends here and the time that we have uh, to study. They are such a blessing to us. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.